Father in heaven. Our prayer this morning is simple. That we would recognize our need for you. That we would recognize that there is nothing in our lives that surpass the greatness, the wonder, the beauty, the majesty of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you that as we gather here this morning, we have that great honor and we have that great privilege. May we surrender all to you this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Nice to have you here this morning as we uh, continue our series on Continuum. Now, if you're a parent here this morning, I want to ask you if you've ever had a conversation with your children or, or, you know, with your children or your teenagers that ever went something like this. You broke a rule in our house and the child or the teenager says something like this in response. But so-and-so's parents let them fill in the blanks. Let them stay up late. Let them eat this. Let them, you know, whatever. Whatever you have. Anybody ever have that conversation with their kids? <laughs> yeah? Is it, is it a common conversation? Right? And if it happens so many times, how do you feel as a parent? Maybe, maybe I'm being really hard on our kids. Isn't that? No? You know? Okay, ever ever feel ever feel that way? There was there was a time I thought with our sons that we were the cruelest parents in the world. You ever had that feeling? Because every time it was like, oh, so and so's mom and dad don't, you know, I'll let them do this and that. Right? That's the thing. What is what is the classic answer that every parent gives in response to that? Huh? Move out. <laughs> Let me take that back. Maybe not every parent. <laughs> Let's say the majority of us, okay? It, I am not. So, yeah. yeah thank you, Betsy. <laughs> right? Isn't, isn't that the classic answer? I am not responsible for them. I am responsible to you, and, I am, and you're accountable to me, right? You know? Isn't it interesting that we do not make rules for our neighbor's kids? We make rules for our kids. We make rules for our, the ones that we're responsible for because that's exactly the reason why we make those rules is because we're responsible and we're, the kids are, and we're accountable for the kids. In fact, we do those because we love and we care for them. That in the context of our families, in the context of our relationship with our kids, we care for them, want to protect them, love them. And I'll tell you, there, there was times in my life where we seemed to, you know, have the boundaries so tight around our kids that there was a time, and I hate to say it, that I thought every other parent must have been very liberal, very lax. You know, you always get to that point because you're always hearing. Then I realized it was my kids that were exaggerating at that point. Those, you know, those families were actually pretty good, right? But that's, that's, that's the tension that happens when you put rules and laws in place. There's always going to be a tension to push it. There's always going to be a law and, 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 and a tension to, to want to um, break those laws or break those rules because they're boundaries. They're boundaries. And, and that's what we're talking about today. You know, there's a tension. There's a tension whenever we incorporate rules, whenever we incorporate laws. 
Because we think they're restrictive. We think they're meant to bind the person in. But in reality, the law, even when we're looking at the law within the Bible, it is meant for a reason. And there's a lot of tension in, 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 Christian, in the Christian circles, especially in the New Testament. What do we do with the law? What do we do with the, you know, we, we did a series on the Ten Commandments. And, and for many of us, you are going to say, but we have Jesus. Okay, but what does that mean in terms of the law? Do we fully understand the law? Because here's the, here's the deal. The law is just not about, you know, the sacrificial rules. In fact, the Old Testament law was, was all about, how, you know, how you dressed, the, you know, the relational component about it, um, what you ate, how you ate, the festivals, the feasts, the, even the calendar, the way it was shaped, was all shaped by the giving of the law of God to the Israelites. And it's, and it's really important to understand this, especially in our Christian context, because we talk so much about grace in, in our world that we, that we pervert the understanding of law, that we pervert the understanding of what it meant for God to give the Ten Commandments, what it meant for God to give the boundaries of the law. And we say grace. You know, I joked in the first service, if, for those of you who don't know, I, I teach as well at Heritage College and Seminary. And I know in, in the messages I'll joke sometime about what I say to my students and, and, and all of that. And, I, and just in case you don't know, you know, that's, that's, my, that's my day gig, okay? When I, when, because I only work Sundays, right? So my day gig <laughs> is... is is teaching at Heritage College and Seminary. And, and a lot of the times I'm teaching Old Testament books, and I've always said to my students, you want to fail this class right away, tell me that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. That is the fastest way to fail you. Because that's a, a wrong impression of the law. In fact, the law is just as much grace in the Old Testament and love as it is in the New Testament, and we need to understand and get a frame of this. Now, to understand the law and to understand the giving of the law, here's, here's an important element maybe you haven't thought about. The Israelites are slaves in the nation of Egypt for 400 years. All they know is the tyranny of the, of the master over the slave. When God liberates them from Egypt... They are a nation without any rule, without any law. They are a mess. They're naive of the way of the world because, because in all honesty, they've been cared for, even though it's a care of slavery. But they don't have this systematic government. They have, they have nothing that forms them as, as, as a nation. In fact, what's interesting about the 400 years is what do they even know about God? The only thing they really know about God is that they worship the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob. That's how they know him. It's not till Moses returns to liberate them, to become their liberator, that he says, by the way, this is what God's name is. Because the revelation of God's name doesn't come until Exodus, you know, the early part of Exodus at the burning bush. So it's, it's very interesting how little the, the ancient Israelites as slaves in, in Egypt must have known about their own heritage, about the God that they served, very little. Moses doesn't just become the great liberator and the great lawgiver. He becomes the great revealer of the character and the nature of the God that they serve. 
So when, when you take a nation of all these people who have really, are really kind of naive and have been brought out of slavery, and they're a mess, what do you do? What's the first thing you do when, you're, when you've got a mess and you've got chaos? What do you try to do? Bring, yeah, clean it up. Bring order to it. You know, from chaos and from a mess, you give rules and you give structure and you give laws in order to define the community. And, and God takes this nation that is raw, that it's infant stages, that is naive, and creates for them a structure, a law system, rules in order to understand how they serve the God who has saved them and built them into a nation that is meant to serve them. So that's, that's the giving of the law. That's, that's how it's, it's, it first finds its way into the nation of Israel. Because they are a naive nation that needs some structure and needs some order. Now, Torah. You know, you hear the word Torah. Torah is the Hebrew word for law. Okay? The, the, the root of the word Torah is, um, is to shoot an arrow... And to hit a mark. That's the root word uh, of Torah, which we, you know, translate as law. It's interesting. To hit a mark is what the original root of Torah is. And in Hebrew, the word for sin is what? To miss the mark. Okay? So it's interesting that it has that tension built in. You know, the word law and the, and the word Torah. And law, as we know, is... is I told you a number of weeks ago in our Ten Commandments series that the law, in the noun form of, the, of, of law or Torah, means instruction, teaching, direction. That for the Old Testament believers, it wasn't just a legal system. It was a, it was a set of instructions, a set of teaching of how this naive infant community can have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the one who has mastery, authority and control over the entire universe, more so than any Egyptian god, more so than any Samaritan gods, more so than any Babylonian gods, more so than any, any gods of any nation that surround the Israelites when they go into the promised land. That this is the definitive Lord who has authority, power, and control over the entire universe. And this is how... Uh, Torah law is is presented. So uh, we're talking about instruction. Now I want to I want to give you another piece of uh, information. The law typically is divided into three different components. Okay, uh, three major categories. Number one is the civil law, right? Uh, you know how do, how do we treat the poor, uh, the animals, and that of of our neighbors? How how should they be treated? Uh, children, debt, divorce. All of those things fall under the civil law. Secondly is the ceremonial law. All the religious sacrificial system, the temple, the priest, all of that falls under the ceremonial law. And the last one is the moral law. And if there's anything that continues from Old Testament to New Testament is this moral law, this understanding of the moral law. Because the moral law is an an, an indication and a reflection of the character of God himself. You know, to say that the Ten Commandments are not, are, are not applicable today is to say that God would approve of stealing. 
that God would approve of murdering, that God would approve, you know, of, of, of all those things that the Ten Commandments t- talks about. And we know categorically that that would be stupid, that that would be crazy to affirm those kinds of things, okay? So, um, and, and, in, and in terms of that, right, those are the categories. Now, I tell you, those, those are categories that are arbitrarily put up by scholars, but, but we have to acknowledge that there's a number of laws in the Old Testament that fall into more than one category. You take the Sabbath law, for instance. Is the Sabbath law a ceremonial law or is it a civil law, right? It could, could fall into one of those. In fact, some would even argue it's a moral law, okay, because it reflects the nature in which God wants us to work and rest, work and rest, Work and rest. It's part of the ethical system that God's put in place. Okay? So civil ceremonial and, and moral law. Um, okay, I want to I take us to a passage, especially out of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 15. Listen to what Moses writes to the Israelites just before going into the promised land. They've, they've, uh, Moses gave three sermons. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's basically three sermons of Moses telling the people, you're about to go into a land that God has blessed, that God has given you, and, and here is what you need to remember. All right? This is a very telling passage. And now, Israel, what does the Lord, your God, require of you? Here, here is Moses that's, you know, been given the law, that's been given the stipulations of the covenant. And, and you know, if I was part of the, of, of the nation of Israel, I would want, okay, here is the covenant that we've entered into with God. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? How do I live this out in my daily lives? You know, to, how, you know how do I manage all these laws? And how do I best represent everything that this covenant has been given? And here's what, here, here's what Moses writes. He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, isn't that, you know, it's not like you make sure you keep one, two, three, four, five. This is the first and primary motivation for adhering to the law, to adhering to any law. That God talks about the relational component first and foremost. Because law not motivated by love becomes legalism. That love motivated towards the law becomes a life of service and obedience to God. Very important. So you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today. And I love this part for your own good. How many times do we hear people say the law, it's restrictions, it's boundaries? You know, there are so many people who have said to me, if I become a Christian, that means I'm going to lose all of this. Boy, we need to stop that. Becoming a Christian means you gain everything and you lose nothing that you shouldn't have lost anyway. Okay? But, but, but that's the wonder of the way that we treat Christianity. Christianity is gaining much more than we could ever gain on our own by ourselves. Much, much more. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God. That's the acknowledgement. You saw God, you know, absolutely destroy the gods of Egypt. 
He is the one and only. He is the one that you need to serve. Yet the Lord chose your ancestors. And again, I love this part. Yet the Lord chose your ancestors as objects of what? His love. His love. And he chose you, their descendants, above all other nations, as is evident today. God did not choose the nation of Israel because it was opportunistic or because there was something special about them. God chose the nation of Israel as an expression of his love. Because if there was ever a nation that should have gained God's favor because of merit or something that they had done, why not the nation of Egypt, who had conquered and had done you know, many things, or the nation of Babylon? Why not pick the powerhouse of the time? Why not? Instead of a nation... Like Israel. So this is really important. So, you know, if we're going to talk about the law, I want to give you five keys for understanding the law. And we will get to the point of why it's important for you. All right? I know I've got a, uh, a whole bunch of data going here, but this is where it's going to be really important for you. Uh, number one, and we need to you know, really get this into our heads, that it's an expression of God's grace and love. That the law is an expression of God's grace and love. As we said in the Ten Commandments, it was, it was some months after God took them out of the nation of Egypt that he even gave them the law. Okay, now that we've been in relationship together, now that we've, you know, lived for a while together, here's the covenant I want to make with you. Here's the law I want to give to you. Here are the boundaries by which we live together. Here's the structure that I want to give you and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, hi, Peter. You know, that's, that's, that's the expression of God's grace and love. We don't often think of it in that, um, you know, why do we give our, you know, again, why do we give our kids rules and boundaries? Because we love them. They may not understand that and know that in the moment. But the reason why we give them rules and reason why we give them boundaries, right? And here's the other thing. Even, even with our own kids, there were boundaries that we gave to one that we didn't give to the other. Because sometimes the boundaries and the rules are shaped by the child, right? Because we know some struggle in certain areas and you need to put different boundaries, different rules around them, right? We, we know, you know, if you're a parent here this morning, you know that instinctively. You know that instinctively. And that's the way you shape your lives and the boundaries of your children because you love each and every one. You identify them individually and you give them what you need, what they need, right? This is, this is, this is why God gave the law, right? To give them the boundaries, to give them the, an expression of his grace and of his love. Here's, here's number two. We talked about this in the Ten Commandments, that it's a confirmation, not a condition of a relationship. The Ten Commandments confirms a relationship. It doesn't make it a condition for a relationship, which is really funny. I've had lots of people say to me, I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. And I said, what's that got to do with anything? You know, we, we listen, we have so many faiths, cultures, uh, so many religions that advocate just be a good person. There's nothing biblical that, that affirms that. As the only means by which you have a relationship with God. In fact, doing good is, your expect, is God's expectation upon you when you come to faith. 
That is, that, that is the default position of anybody who claims faith. But it's a very fine line. It's a very fine line between doing good and thinking that's what gets you the merit of God as opposed to doing good as an expression of your heartfelt faith in God. And we know it's a very slippery slope. We know that many times we drift into that area where we're doing good for God and then we expect God to bless us because we're doing good for him. Isn't that right? Here's a really problematic, here's a passage that just really blows, blows me away. Um, it's Galatians 3, 10 to 11. Galatians 3, 10 to 11. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. He said, but those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under a curse. Wow. That, that sentence alone should cause you to just pause. Those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is anyone who does not observe and obey all the commandments that are written in the God's book of law. In other words, if you break one, you break them all. And to break one puts you under a curse. If you think that is what is going to get you right with God. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. I love that Paul says, so it is clear, but it's not clear to everyone. There's so many people that want their merit to count, and that's fair. But the reality is, if you think that is going to get you right with God, it's, it's dead wrong. For the scriptures say it is through faith, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And, I, and you've, heard, you've heard me say this many, many times before. The most important thing in your life to God is your faith. And the object of that faith has been made so clear that we cannot confuse it. In fact, to confuse it is actually um, creative. Um, how do I say this politely? Creative deception. Is what it is. It's creative deception if you don't believe what the scriptures say very clearly about the object of faith and how important faith is. It's that important. It's that important. Uh, here's number three. It confronts our sinfulness and self-righteous tendencies while demonstrating God's holiness. That's the contrast of the law. Okay, um, the book of Galatians and, and Romans and the New Testament make this clear. Back when we did the, the uh, Ten Commandments, we used this particular passage as, um, as validation of what we were talking about. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Isn't that amazing? God gave the law to be a mirror as to how sinful we really are. Wow. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Isn't that, and, that's, and that's another uh, phenomenal passage. That when we became aware of the sinfulness because of trying to keep the law, that God's grace became more abundant in parallel to that. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, isn't that, isn't that wonderful, right? Number four, it, uh, 
It points to ultimate freedom being found under God's authority and boundaries. We think to be free is to be free, and we have no restrictions on us. We have no boundaries on us. We have no authority on us. And, 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 and number one, the Bible says we are all a slave to something. We're either a slave to God or we're a slave to our own sinful desires. That's what the Bible says. There's no such thing as ultimate freedom. Freedom, the way the Bible describes it, is freedom that is found under the authority of God. Now, Darlene and I just got done reading uh, the book Rising Strong by Brené Brown. Now, she, she talks about a revelation in her research. In her, and she is a researcher um, that talks about vulnerability, talks about shame, um, talks about those things that happen inside of us, um, which is really kind of cool to think that somebody actually researches this stuff. And, and use this, you know, science to, to validate it. What she found that really surprised her about research is the people who are the most compassionate, the people who have the most love, the most mercy, the people who, you know, reach out to people uh, in, in powerful ways are the people who are the most boundaried, the ones that put the most boundaries around themselves and come under certain authorities. They are the people who can say very clearly, this is what is okay, this is what is not okay. You see, because she says, the people who don't put any boundaries around them and allow people to do whatever to them, and they think they're just being nice, and they think they're just being accepted and tolerant and all those things, what they end up doing is becoming bitter, antagonistic, um, you, you know, jaded, because people will mistreat them. People will take advantage of them. People will do things that inside themselves is not okay. But the, but the people who have the most love, the most compassion when they reach out to other people, who are the ones who have the most boundaries. Now, now I don't know about you, but that just, you know, that just blew me away. But that's what the research shows. And I thought about the law. Here's God that's giving an expression of his love, but the way he expresses that love is giving boundaries, is giving rules, is giving laws. This is what is right. This isn't what what is right. This is what's allowable. This is not what's allowable. And in doing that, it's an expression of his love, but in understanding those boundaries, we become more compassionate, loving, merciful, and more like the character of God. Now, I tell you, that that should just shake everything up inside of you to see it from that perspective. And yet we have scientific research that proves it. Scientific research that proves it. Which, you know, which, which demonstrates the character and the nature of the boundaries that are getting shaped in the law. All right, here's, here's the final one. And I have to leave this up because I got, I got told I, I, I went through this too fast. Uh, and people didn't get it down in, in their notes for life group. And I wouldn't want you to show up at life group missing point number five, which is, which is like the whole culmination of the whole message, right? The point number five is so important. Jesus is the ultimate expression and fulfillment of the law. Ultimate expression and fulfillment of the law. And here's the passage. You know, some of us know this passage. Some of us have remembered. Everybody get that, by the way? Okay, thank you. All right. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Here's Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, the, you know, the best-known sermon 
that Jesus gave. Matthew 5, you know, the one that said, blessed are those, and gives all the details of what life in the community, in the new covenant looks like. And Jesus said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. Isn't it interesting that he talks about the writings of the prophets? And understand this too. A prophet in the Old Testament is not just about future telling. That is a secondary part of the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were covenant police officers. They were mediators of the covenant. They would, they would see that the nation of Israel was not living by the law. And, and, and it demonstrated that they were drifting from God. The prophets, first and foremost, would say, Israel, smarten up. Get back to the covenant. Start being righteous. Start taking care of the poor. Start taking care. Don't be deceiving. Take care of the, you know, all of these, all of these things. That's what the prophets would say. They would look around in the culture and say, we are getting away from God. That was the first and, for, first and primary responsibility of an Old Testament prophet. Then they would say, if you're not going to get right, here is what's going to come in the future for you. If you don't get obedient, but we kind of ignore all that covenant stuff. We ignore all the responsibility and obedience stuff that the prophets were all about. And we start going into the future and all, and all this stuff. And we sort of miss the whole point. And this is what Jesus is getting at too. The prophets, the covenant mediators, the people that saw the condition of the people's heart in the nation. I came to accomplish all of that. I came to accomplish that purpose. I came to fulfill the direction and everything that the prophets talked about as part of the covenant. And I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. You know, if you know Hebrew, you know about the jot and the tittles. The, that's what the old... Uh, you know, versions actually said woodingly because if you know a Hebrew script, there's like these little kind of uh, parts of the language. And Jesus says, none of the law, none of the law is going to escape. And what Jesus is talking about, when we talk about the ceremonial law the, and, and those parts of the sacrificial system, Jesus becomes the embodiment of the sacrificial system. He satisfies the entire sacrificial system. The book of Hebrews says he came as a sacrifice once for all. Guess what? No more does a high priest have to go in a yearly, um, in a yearly endeavor into the Holy of Holies, sacrifice an animal, and, and sacrifice the animal for the sins of the entire nation. And then the next year they got to do it again, and the next year after that, and the next year after Jesus comes, finalizes that once and for all. You know, the, 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 the civil ceremonial parts of the, of, of, the, of the law are totally satisfied in Jesus. But so much of the moral law is still part of what we serve in obedience to. So we may not serve the Old Testament law the way it was structured for the nation of Israel. But we do serve the law implicitly through Jesus Christ who satisfied the sacrificial system once and for all, but continues that we have the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of service, the sacrifice of time. The, you, know, all, you know, we live as a sacrifice, as it says in Romans 12, as a sacrifice for what Jesus has done on our behalf. So that's how the law shapes us as believers, which is vitally, vitally important. Okay, you guys all got that?
All right. Amen. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one last quote that we're going to close on. Um, it comes out of Andy Stanley's book, um, The Grace of God. And, and he comes to that point, you know, there's, there's a number of you who are going to say, well, what about in the Old Testament when God comes down with thunder, lightning, he's on the mountaintop, and everybody's afraid. In fact, they're so afraid to even touch the mountain. Okay? And, and because, you know, the, the fear of God is brought into the people. What about those passages? And I think Andy Stanley does a wonderful job at articulating um, a, a very important truth for all of us to understand. Don't be afraid, Moses answers in Exodus twenty twenty. For God has come in this way to test you so that you will fear him and it will keep you from sinning. Did you catch that? God came to you in this powerful, um, you know, scary way because he wants to scare you so you don't sin. Okay? Wow, okay? He goes on to write, Even this terrifying display was for the welfare of the people. The Israelites had no history with the personal or national consequences of disobedience. Like a child, Israel was naive. There was no way to grasp what sin could do to their infant nation. There was no way for them to understand the danger of intermarrying with the pagan nations that surrounded them. They couldn't appreciate the compounding danger of financial debt. This was all new territory. So whereas God could not leverage their experience, he leveraged his overwhelming power to scare or terrify them into submission. Wow. Isn't that contrary to a lot of what we, we say? And then this is how he concludes. Seems appropriate, inappropriate to you? Not to me. When I was a kid, my dad put the fear of dad in me on lots of occasions. I didn't fear the natural consequences of the forbidden activity. Now, this is, this is important because as a parent, your child's going to say to you, I should be allowed to do this. I should, but they're, they're not old enough yet to understand the natural consequences of the decisions they're about to make. But you as a parent do, which is really important. Because that's the distinction that is made here. We think kids can go ahead and do whatever they want and they're going to be okay. And that's a good way for them to learn. You know, fine. Right? They didn't fear the natural consequences of the forbidden activities. How could I? I was naive, as Andy, what Andy says. But I sure feared the parental consequences. And that kept me out of a lot of trouble. He says, looking back, I would absolutely put that in the grace column. Isn't that a great quote? You know, and, and, and doesn't, that, doesn't that change the whole perception of fear of God? You ever, ever thought of that? That maybe the fear of God is something to protect you from maybe getting involved in something that is not good for you? And as a parent, you understand that absolutely. 
100%. Your teenager probably doesn't. Your child probably, you know, nowhere near. How could they? They have no idea what the consequences of their actions are going to potentially give. And I don't know how many times, how many times, how many times as a pastor, I've heard somebody say, I wish somebody had guarded me better when I was a child. I don't know how many times. And they look back years later and they say, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. So the law. Come back next week for the next part of it, okay? God bless you. Let's pray. Father.